Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today, I am so honored to welcome back my favorite crime writer working today, the Edgar Award-winning novelist Megan Abbott, author of such acclaimed works as Give Me Your Hand, You Will Know Me, The Fever, Dare Me, Queen Pin, and more. Megan's newest title, The Turnout, was released on August 3rd and became not only a Today Show Read with Jenna book pick, but also a New York Times bestseller. Megan, I'm so pleased to have you back on the podcast. Congratulations on all of the book's success so far. I would love to know how you're doing and how this whirlwind of well-deserved excitement has been for you. Thank you. It's it's been it's been great. You know, no one really knows how, you know, what a book reception will be like, and especially in these complicated times. <laughs> you say. So it's it's been, you know, it, it's is about it. I'm not going to say it. it's gone as well as well as one could dream for. So that's a very lucky thing, and lots of talented people at my publisher Putnam. Um, um, so that's that's been a relief because. Um, you, you just never really know. And you feel so vulnerable when the book is out there, you know, for the first time, it was all yours, this sort of, in these quarters of your brain for so long. And then all of a sudden it's out in the world and everyone can see how weird you are. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I am so excited to read it. I've been reading so many film books right now for the podcast, yeah. but it's like right there. I have yours. I have Sean's. I have Bill's new one. I'm like so excited to just yeah. dive in. Yeah. Look, it's, I, I have to say I did do one film related event I did a talk about the red shoes this was not a virtual event it was an in-person one and it was oh, so wow. it was so great to get to talk about something adjacent um, that wasn't my book but that was uh, you know this sort of classic ballet the, the ballet movie that everyone uh, everyone loves most of them they don't so yeah. <laughs> um, so it was really fun to be able to rewatch that and sink into something else um, uh, movie related, which is, you know, yeah. my deepest and, longings are there. <laughs> yeah, it's the ultimate. I know you're really heavily influenced by film. It's one of the things I love about you and your work. You can tell, I mean, it, they, it feels very cinematic when I read you. And so that's really exciting. But I know you talked about the turnout the last time you were on, back when we recorded the Martin Scorsese episode after Christmas. It was that long ago. Yeah, it's a million years ago. So. I know, but it kicked off the season and it was so much fun. And for those listening to this, though, for the first time who might be just um, experiencing you and your work and wanting to pick it up, can you give people just a quick overview of what to expect from the turnout? Yeah, it's basically it's um, it's the story of two sisters who were sort of raised in the world of ballet and their mother was this sort of glamorous uh, dancer and she ran a ballet school. And now and this isn't a spoiler. You learn on the first page that that both their parents have died and that they now run their adults and run the ballet school with one of the sisters husbands. And mm-hmm. um, they're very cloistered life uh, uh, as a lot of people that devote themselves to, to one art or sport or anything. So they have a very cloistered and controlled life. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, 
they need to hire a contractor after there's an incident at the dance school and this sort of uh, um, seductive figure named Derek arrives and uh, he kind of um, upturns their lives in, in many ways. That's probably as far as I can go without spoilers, but but Ooh. you can get the idea. <laughs> Very exciting. And I thought it was so cool that you were actually at like a strip mall in Michigan taught by when I was reading um, two sisters. I love that. I went to like um, tap ballet and jazz was the thing like back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and so I love seeing uh, a photo of you from the eighties in your ballet gear. And I was not coordinated at all. I was way too tall and so super clumsy. So I've always admired dance and I've loved watching it, but I was a disaster. So I'm very excited to yes, read that. I was a disaster as well, uh, <laughs> but for, not, for, I didn't even have that, that good excuse you know when you're tall when you're young like inevitably you could be a great dancer but they, <laughs> they don't know what to do with you at the time I was very petite so I should have been great but I was terrible <laughs> <laughs> we probably would have been the outsiders together in the class it would have That's been right. yeah perfect for that no but I can't wait when we were brainstorming ideas for this episode you asked a really vital question and wanting to know which eras or subjects were perhaps missing or overlooked and as I scanned the entire series, I realized that it was largely classic movies at the time we were talking and also female subjects. I'm not sure if I mentioned comedies or not, but because I mostly cover very serious terrain on the podcast, I thought your suggestion of Judy Holiday was especially clever because she really had it all humor, heart, pathos, screwball chops, charm. And the titles included in the recent uh, Criterion Channel lineup to celebrate her centennial really illustrate her full range. Obviously, we will be going into the films, including for those listening, 1952's The Marrying Kind, 1954's It Should Happen to You, and or Puffed, we're going to say, and 1956's The Solid Gold Cadillac in more detail in a moment. But before we do that, I would love to know your thoughts on the career and films of Judy Holiday overall. And were any of these new to you or did you know them all pretty well? Yeah, I've oh, I've loved her for so long and none of them yeah. were new to me though. They, I got them maybe, this would have been in the DVD era where like all DVD, <laughs> I did, it was the era where you could rent movies. Uh, yes. And uh, I did, um, at the time, my husband at the time <laughs> and I were really, we really loved, um, we really loved her and sort of her, you know, more, more famous roles. Um, I think actually it was first um, Adam's Rib that we saw where she's a small, oh, yes. uh, yeah. um, but then especially playing uh, Billy Duff. So we'd seen the iconic roles, but there were all these, uh, there were, you know, six or seven other movies that she'd been in. And we sort of, including these four, we're going to talk about today and sort of one by one, we tracked them down, but I hadn't revisited them since. And um and certainly the ones on Criterion are really nice and crisp and, and, and oh, look. Yes. Yeah. So it was really so fun when they had sort of, a, I guess it was July. Um, they, they've put them on there. The of them are still on there. Um, a focus on her and I could rewatch them and sort of also see them all together where you sort of see her choices are more clear. Yeah. Um, because she's sort of famous. I also have an affection for her because she's from Queens, from Sunnyside, Queens, and I live in Queens. And oh, I love that. 
Yeah, Ian, she was like high school best friends with Patricia Highsmith, the crime novelist. So I didn't know that. That's yeah. amazing. They were really close. They were both like the prodigies of their high school. Mm-hmm. They went to high school in Manhattan. And Judy Holiday is famous for having this. It's probably like a 170-something IQ. I know. Um, comes up in all the press because she's sort of famous for playing a dumb blonde. And, but when you really look at the, like, the movies we're going to talk about today, she really never played a, a dumb blonde in any of no. these even born yesterday she's sharper than you'd imagine yes much sharper and is actually this sort of voraciously she's an intellectual in disguise uh yeah. so, so that was one of the reasons that it was such a pleasure to see more of these movies and you really see her making these choices of always playing really independent interesting women with like a full range of sort of texture and character and 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 it was also drawn to her because she was sort of gray listed. You know, she did have to testify. And yes. it's a really moving story where she um, um, essentially played Billy Dawn, her Born Yesterday character, in the, in the testimony. And I was just reading today because I remembered it. I'll, I'll read it out loud. Um, she wrote a letter about what it was. She was essentially writing about the experience of testifying to her friend, Haywood Brown. Brown and she said, Woody, maybe you're ashamed of me because I played Billy Dawn, you know, essentially mm-hmm. in the testimony. And she said, well, I'll tell you something. You think you're going to be brave and noble. Then you walk in there and there are the microphones and all those senators mm-hmm. are looking at you. It scares the shit out of you. But I'm not ashamed of myself because I didn't name names. That much I preserved. And of course, now we view that as so much more than that. Like Because yes. you know, movie history is littered with people who name names, you know, Ilya Kazan, you know, there's just uh, yeah. Uh, so, so, so that was sort of seemed so heroic to me um, too. So I've always loved her. Uh, and yes. so It was it was perfect to have this excuse to to do a little deep dive back into her work. Yeah, she was kind of like a covert intellectual, which is sort of I think what women were kind of around the that era. You had to kind of hide your intelligence. I mean, even today they say girls do that in school or that kind of thing. You don't want to seem too smart, and so watching these movies in quick succession, you do kind of see that she is smarter than one would imagine. Cause I also rewatched some of the other ones like born yesterday and you can see the wheels turning. And I just love that. Like Jack Lemon talking about what it was like to work with her and how brilliant she was and how many word games she loved to play. He made a joke, something like if you told me she invented Scrabble, I would believe you. So I love that about her. Yes. And I think that intelligence comes through in all her performances. And what I love about these four is that they're all really smart women. It's, um, they don't even, they're not even putting on, uh, um, I mean, w- one could argue it should happen to you. I think she's set to consider a movie where she plays another dumb blonde, but that she is no dumb blonde in, in that movie. No. <laughs> so I, I do really feel like it's the culture that's deciding this thing, but that the, she's really choosing these really interesting women to play and then giving them this sort of full full range of mm-hmm. and desire and and ambition and and I think that's really true in all of hers so I I, I love the the notion of much like Jean Harlow or something sort of cast is one thing but when you really look at 
at their work, it becomes something else. I think especially even more so for Judy Holiday. She's not in that many movies and she she was came from New York. So she's working with, you know, a lot of these are, uh, you know, playwrights adapting their own work. A lot of the material is very writerly and character driven. And that, and she had obviously choosing great directors. You know, we have two George Cukor ones on here. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, she's just um, one of those that uh, the, the more you dig, the more, the more you love her. <laughs> I know. And Cukor had such a good eye for talent. I mean, he was always famous for finding these wonderful people. Daryl Zanuck had her on under contract way back. Um, as you probably know, she was in this like nightclub act with Betty Common and Adolph Green. And um, when I was reading about it, uh, Kuker told um, Peter Bogdanovich that it was actually a pretty highbrow uh, nightclub act. And so she was famous for kind of playing dumb a little bit, but he said it wasn't your typical baby doll that she was playing. And so Harry Cohn had a hard time like seeing her as um, Billy Dawn or these kind of roles. And so it was really Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and uh, Kuker. And I think it was, I don't know if it was Kanan or who it was, um, but in Adam's rib, they sort of conspired to make that almost her audition piece for stardom and for Born Yesterday. And so again, the covert intelligence of her being there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Knew, knowing that they had this this diamond in the rough, and the the rough isn't anything about her. It's that she was sort of hidden away in this nightclub act, and then doing these small parts. And then, I mean, that was a much coveted role when when yeah. they the <laughs> I mean, it already was on Broadway, but when they mm-hmm. moved into film, it's usually when these actresses get the or actors too, because I happened to Paul Douglas who lost the part. Um, oh yes, Broderick Crawford. It's hard to imagine anyone but Broderick Crawford but usually you don't mm-hmm. get to, you know you don't get to make the move to Hollywood and and I think if it hadn't been for Adam's Rim maybe they wouldn't have but they at least had some something there and the, the trust of these writer and directors that were supporting her yeah no it's wonderful well we'll go chronologically through the films I'm sure we'll reference a bunch though as we go um, and it actually works out well especially today because the first two releases were directed by George Cukor who also directed Holiday's Oscar-winning 1950 turn and Born Yesterday additionally the two in the middle find Holiday's co-star and love interest played by Jack Lemmon who's one of my favorite classic film stars as well so there's all kinds of overlap today, but kicking things off, we're starting with one of two films uh, that was actually new to me, 1952's witty yet incisive dramedy, The Marrying Kind, directed by Kuker and written by the great Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon. In the film, we meet a married couple played by Judy Holliday and then newcomer Aldo Ray, who are chronicling their relationship from meeting to marriage to the divorce court they find themselves in um, as we encounter them, disagreeing over little details, including who picked up whom in the park all those years ago. As the he said, she said narrative continues. We realize that uh, mixed in with all of the history is as much love as there is animosity. Surprisingly, equal parts bitter and sweet, although it feels a bit stagey at times, I thought. It was still, though, a very sharp, film in the way that it painted a true picture of the ups and downs of married life or relationships where you're getting to know someone behind the scenes. So what did you think of this 
This is what I was knew that I wanted to do because I, I can't believe that it's not talked about as one of the great movies of that era because it's it's just it's a thing that that Hollywood almost never made after 1960, which is like really about what like a married couple, a working married couple with jobs and sort of bills to pay and like real life sort of struggles of being married and that love isn't enough. And they have these sort of, and it's that dramedy is exactly right. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a big curve, people call it a curveball, but if you've been watching it, it kind of makes sense. There's a big narrative turn that it takes. And some people that don't like the film don't like that. But to me, that's what makes makes oh, the film. Yeah. yeah. It gives it this sort of depth and heft. And, and it, you understand everything that came before it once you get to that moment. And, and although Ray and Judy Holliday are so incredible together and, you, you know, you just sort of adore them from the start um yeah. it just feels very real in a way that's not trying to announce itself like, you know it's not kitchen sink realism real and it's more real than that because often the things that we uh call kitchen sink realism or um you know movies i love but like things like on the waterfront or something they're actually very heightened this is not heightened this is actually the real real it's almost yes. like like, what would, like the father of later like very good sitcom would take these kinds of elements and spin it um so i i just wish it were more appreciated and i was so glad that it ended up on criterion because you have you know one of the great directors these great screenwriters and you have this amazing cast and it's under 90 minutes and it's like this whole opera of of emotion yeah I know so much happens to this couple another thing is the chemistry you you exactly hit it on the head there between Aldo Ray and Judy Holiday who I love because they were kind of two people known for their uh interesting or offbeat unique voices and so you have them in the same movie and they can do such cool things with their voices i mean judy holiday is super famous for that but that's also aldo ray i read that it was um offered to sid caesar who didn't think that the role was good enough um he was like this isn't the right role for me and so he turned it down and harry Cohn remembered Aldo Ray had played like a taxi driver in a movie or like a bit part. And then he was explaining, he's like, well, right now he is the sheriff of Crockett, California. Um, but I think we can get him. And so, um, yeah, so Kuker saw the, the screen test and he said it was the weirdest test because Aldo Ray was basically sitting on the floor playing cards. And he said, but there's something, he called it a flashing eye where the light would just grab his eye. He said he was just so arresting. And so um, he knew right away, like, this was the guy. And I mean, at the end, I think it even had this thing like introducing all the way, or maybe it was at the beginning. I mean, they knew a star was born there and uh, Judy matched his intensity. And I think she made him better. They just really worked well together. But I love all the stuff you were saying about um, the realism of behind the scenes, like, 
when he's making these noises in the bathroom, I don't know if he was gargling or whatever, like we're making natural noises tonight. And I just thought that was so perfect. Yeah. yeah. It has so many great details like that. And it is sort of what I love about it is that it is, it, it takes all of that seriously too, that this is what it's yeah. really like, you know, sort of the thin man, there's very few married couples, like happily married you know, for the most part couples in, in Hollywood cinema. And I think it, it, it's so great at getting those details and really nailing them and, mm-hmm. and really getting at the layers and just like, like who picked up who in the park is yes. <laughs> and really like so much about you know we, we think of the 50s now as this sort of gender wars era right where it's like really sort of cementing very binary views of the opposite sexes and it's going to come end up with you know uh, Rock Hudson and Doris Day movies where it seems you know, literally impossible for, <laughs> for there to be any commingling. But here what I love is sort of the, you know, this sort of it's that great moment when it's all kind of messy and no one's pretending that they don't they don't have feelings for each other. And you totally yeah. all that chemistry is allowed to sort of come to life in a way that George Cooper was so good also at getting out of his actors. Yeah, he really was. And I love that this isn't afraid to deal with some issues of, you know, gender um, equality. Like later in the film, her boss leaves her some money and the husband doesn't want anyone supporting his wife. Like he didn't even want her to have a job when they were married. Um, And so it's, you know, what is he giving you this money for? And that whole sequence, I love how it plays out uh, for company, like, and it's, should I go somewhere else? Like that thing where, you know, I've been in a situation where I get picked up by my friends who are a couple and I'll get in the car and I can tell within like two minutes, there was a fight right before I got in the car and you're like stuck in that car for 45 minutes and just, you want to be anywhere else. So yeah, there's just so much there. I love that. Absolutely. And and there's this there's this moment when Judy Holiday has to do this dramatic shift that like literally seems impossible to pull off. But yes. it's because all this other stuff has felt so real and vivid. You know her so I mean you feel like you're you know these two so well that it just it just tears your heart out when when you see her uh experience these emotions and it's just all like all that stuff that may seem small and petty building out, it was it was creating you to feel this thing you you're feeling um at the end. And and I love that. I think I mean the only other movie in that era that I think comes close with marriage is a Letter to Three Wives, which has that you know. Oh, it's very, good one. Yeah. yeah, which I think is really great at like right around the same time. Um, really good at getting at, at like the everyday business of being married. Um, and I think that's a yeah rare achievement. And uh, and she's just incredible in it. She really is. No, that's a wonderful one. Well, our next film, again, is uh, Cooker. It was written by Garson Kanan, solo this time, and it was in- originally intended for actor Danny Kaye. Uh, but Kanan's wife, Ruth, Ruth Gordon, wisely suggested casting Judy Holliday as the lead. Directed again, as I said, by George Cooker. This is one that I saw and mildly appreciated on video uh, back in the, the 90s days of bad tracking but I found it much smarter, frother, frothier, and timelier in this rewatch. So I was really glad you chose it. A film about a woman who wants to make a name for herself. And indeed, it was originally titled A Name for Herself. It Should Happen to You is a tale of fame for the sake of fame. A naive young woman, Gladys Glover, 
Judy Holiday feels defeated by New York City. So in a last ditch effort for notoriety, she rents a billboard with her name spelled out in gigantic letters and soon becomes like an overnight sensation pursued by Jack Lemmon's aspiring documentary filmmaker who tries to reason with her pursuit for fame. Soon Peter Lawford enters the proceedings as a wealthy businessman, hoping to talk her into changing the location of her billboard. Smooth talking and suave in one of the film's funniest scenes, Holiday's nervous Gladys tries to distract Lawford from his seduction in progress by asking him if he's lonely and if he ever considered buying a parrot. And I think I rewound that scene like four times. <laughs> I really like this one. It's daffy yeah. and fun, but it has something to say about this era of influencers and people famous for being famous that I think hits right on the head today so what did you think of it should happen to you this is the one I've always loved the most uh it I first saw it on video uh and at that time I was living in Hell's Kitchen which is right near Columbus Circle where the first billboard is in New York so it was all shot in New York yeah it's all shot in New York and that's a part of New York that pretty unchanged and and that's an area you know they they keep driving around the circle in one scene in this and it's uh um you know it feels very new york in that way um and it's sort of delicious but that at this time it felt so prescient because i mean there's always been a hunger for fame because it was in this movie but this sort of famous for for being famous thing is is really happening here uh and i love that that she takes that Judy Holiday takes very seriously Gladys Glover, her character's desires. There's so she many actors that would have, <laughs> like, would have like, uh, you know, treated it as a sort of, as a sort of very silly thing and played up the silliness. But, but yeah. Judy Holiday is the opposite way. This is like an amazing idea she came up with and it is mm-hmm. and it's getting her all these things and she just keeps talking to I love to see when Jack Lemon who's this artist he wants to make documentary films about the people he's trying to suggest that what she's interested in is superficial and she keeps telling him <laughs> I had one board then I had two now I have five billboards how is that not success and it's, it's, just, it's a great conversation and and I love it it like she doesn't consider it shallow that her character, you can just tell by the way she plays it, loves the attention, loves the, all these um, all these people trying to convince her to do things, is enjoying Peter Lovers' sort of creepy attentions, even though she <laughs> makes her a little nervous. And uh, she's just really this single woman, um, you know, sort of fighting her way through New York that that comes upon this idea and then just sort of runs with it. And I think this has something in common with solid gold Cadillac we'll talk about because it feels very sort of populist energy to it that like there's this almost like Capra at his best that um, maybe the part that Gene Arthur would have played 15 years before where mm-hmm. um, there's sort of big business and people in suits that think they can buy their way into everything. And then there's the, the every person, the every woman in this case um, who has, is able to sort of skip these steps and, uh, and, and uh, not, not be to the manner born or have any money at her disposal, but make something happen for herself. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's a marvelous film. And yeah, there's the tenderness. That's what um, Kuker was telling Bogdanovich. Like, we wouldn't have done it if they were making fun of her 
or making her ideas seem slight, like the tenderness is built in. And he said, that's why we love her, even though these ideas might not make the most sense. Like there's, yeah, there's a sensitivity there that I think attracted him. And yeah, and Jack Lemon, I mean, for his first performance is just so assured. He's kind of playing the bohemian, uh, the more intellectual that probably Judy Holiday would have had more in common with his uh, persona off screen. Uh, Jack Lemon tells the best story about he gives so much credit to um, Judy Holiday for these early films because they were his first two pictures of just how well they got along. But he tells the best story about going and um, you might have heard this, too, because he's told it a few times where he went and he tested and then he asked out Judy Holiday, like, hey, let's go have dinner. She said, sure. And so he rented a car and he got the name of a restaurant and address and he picked her up and they went to the top of um, this, like he said, I think it was uh, Laurel Canyon. And that's when his car got a flat tire and he was so embarrassed. And he said it was nighttime, dark, it's California. This isn't our place. Cause he'd been from Broadway too. Um, he'd been doing like uh, room service on Broadway. So this wasn't his town. And he said, why don't you stay in the car, keep it locked, you know, just for safety. I'll go down to the filling station and get somebody. Okay. So she agrees and he starts going down. He said, it's really pitch black. There's curves. I'm not wearing the right shoes. So he got about halfway and he thought, I got to trek back up there. We'll just coast down and figure it out. So he gets back up there and, you know, knocks on the window and she lets him in. And as soon as he sits down, he said, I'm out of breath. I'm like ragged just from walking. She said, do you have a handkerchief? And so he said, sure. And he just hands it to her and she wipes off oil or, you know, and grease. And he said, are you okay? Like he didn't know what it was. Oh yeah. I just changed the tire. It's fine. (laughs) And so he said, I love that it never occurred to me, the man, to like change the tire. And I'm there trying to come up with some elaborate coasting scheme. And Judy Holiday is up there changing the tire. And I just thought that was perfect. I felt the need to say nothing about it. Like, let, let, yes. let him do what he thinks he needs to do. Meanwhile, well, I'll actually fix the problem. <laughs> I know. It's so perfect. So, yeah. Uh, uh, perfect. I mean, she is one of those actresses that you, everybody, like, whenever you hear stories about her from crew, from, you know, from colleagues, it's just everyone loved her and, yeah. and, and loved to work, which is why she's sort of working multiple times with the same writers, directors, actors, and you really feel that love um, for her and that real affection and uh, I think like her characters too she's really interested in playing people or being in worlds where people treat each other decently and that yeah. oh that's an excellent point yeah yeah it's it's and I think that's part of what feels so refreshing about it is you feel in these sort of safe hands and it there's something so lovely about you know, the, the things that Jack Lemon might have taken there. Cause I love Jack Lemon too, but yeah. um, I feel like he carried, he carried a lot of this with him. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. How to treat people with dignity. And that's a really excellent point. That is kind of a through line that goes through her movie, a movie filmography there, like uh, people looking out for one another, like another film that was new to me in the series. And I watched it partly while well, I wanted to, of course, I wanted to watch all the Judy holidays, but also because our friend Bill Boyle kept talking about it, it was full of life. Yes. Um, and it was just such a beautiful film. And her character was the most affectionate one. She's also the, I mean, her husband was a writer in the movie. 
uh, who's Richard Conte, I believe. And but she was the one doing all the reading, and she was his favorite critic or the person he wanted to voice things off of. And I, I just love that. Yeah, there's a dignity. She's the more intellectual of the two of them. Yes. And it's one that wants to go back to work. She does not like being pregnant. She she's no. tortured by it. And she also is, you know, believes, you know, she's much nicer to his family, which is part of what it's about. Um, yeah. really it's a that's a fascinating character in that movie too. It's it's I don't like it quite as much as these four, only because the, the guy who plays her father-in-law, Papa, is a little annoying to me. But he is. Yeah, you know. you're like, Papa, leave him alone. Yeah. He's like destroying you know, their home. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really, really like Jim, Jimmyed up Italian accent. That's yeah. But, but I but I like it too. Uh, I just yeah, but but I think, yeah, get it. I think um, I almost put it on here because again it's that's those same choices she's making both in the role she's picking the world she's in and the way she plays the parts yeah and these films just keep getting more prescient exactly what you were saying with um it should happen to you uh, full of life and again that's a theme that we see in the marrying kind of the idea that sometimes when you are in relationships your in-laws can drive you nuts or there's questions about family and yeah i just love that but at the end of the day, they are your family and you love them and you can see her respecting everybody, even with the difference in opinions. Uh, but yeah, the It Should Happen to You is a wonderful film. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we moved on on this one? I was not quite aware how closely these were, you know, was yoked to. Yes. <laughs> and how, like in time, how how they were made practically back to back, I guess it seems like, and there's yeah. such a matched set um, again with, with Jack Lemon. And I mean, I think is what is, is so effervescent and delightful that I think it's title may be the reason no one has ever seen it. It is. No yes. No. And he hated the title. I was lucky enough. I interviewed Chris Lemon, Jack's son, who sounds exactly like his dad. So it was a little eerie at first. Like you're like, hello, dear. And you're like, it sounds like Jack Lemon. And it was just a little overwhelming. It was awesome. But yes, uh, he was talking about his dad because uh, in the box set uh, or Pift, if we want to try to announce it on the air a little better, yes. um, was the one with like the most just insane title. And uh, he said, you know, my father always loved this movie, but he blamed the title. He also hated the title for It Should Happen to You. He's like, what a oh. stupid title. You're going to forget what it's about. Um, so, yeah, some of the titles weren't the best, but these movies are just adorable. Yeah. They are. And this is like a really sophisticated, this really does remind me closer to the sophisticated um, relationship comedies of the, the 30s because yes. again it's a divorcing couple uh, but this week sort of see them and their and their single journey uh, being journey being a single and it felt very 50s in in that in that way so 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 yeah it's just uh, um, it's just a sort of perfect little confection and if only they had changed the title yes I know titles needed to help them out but yeah, reteaming that same year with Jack Lemon once again, the two co-starred in the very funny, very underrated, and yes, very stupidly named comedy or poofed for Peyton Place director Mark Robson, written by George Axelrod and based on his play 
a chronicle of a happy divorce, the film finds the unhappily married couple, Judy Holiday and Jack Lemmon, getting a divorce, only to predictably wind up back together in the end in one of the era's very popular comedies of remarriage, which we did see a lot in the 30s and 40s, featuring Kim Novak and Jack Carson in hilarious supporting roles. I had not seen this one since I reviewed it as part of that Columbia box set of overlooked Jack Lemon titles that was released a little over a dozen years ago. Yeah. And in promotion, I did speak to Chris who shared that. Yep. He always really had a great affection for this one, despite the lousy title. He really loved working with Judy holiday and Kim Novak, who he also co-starred with later in the notorious landlady for her partner at the time and his good friend, Richard Quine, who actually directed the next film we're going to talk about as well. So lots of nice connections there. But before we do that, more on Pift or... Yes. Yes. (laughs) I mean, this is sort of, uh, yeah, it's, it it really does remind me of this screwball that, well, this might be Catherine Hepburn, Irene Dunning, Stuart, where there, and this is again, another New York movie where, and that Judy Holiday has this sort of flashier career. She's a TV writer. um, So glamorous too. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And Jack Lemmon has the more sort of boring office job and they're, um, you know, we, there's just this, so they're both, it's sort of about both their journeys trying to be single when, when they obviously still have all these feelings for each other. And I mean, it does have these great supporting performances by Kim Novak, who's oh this like great, sexy, sexy young thing that is totally in ownership of her single gal life. And then Jack yeah. Carson, who I just love everything. I love everything I ever see Jack Carson in. He's just this incredible character actor that is probably in 80 movies. If you look at his IMDb. Oh, steals every scene he's kind of the tony randall of the movie but yeah yes yes. and he's um you know he's sort of the heel the lovable heel um who thinks he can tell jack lemon how to be a single man and mark robson is a director i always really loved he came up um essentially through i mean he directed seventh victim he really started as an editor on citizen kane and he really um is a fascinating career. You know, tends his most more his movies tend to sort of really cross all genres. But but Seventh Victim is one of my favorite movies he's done. And all I mean, I think he edited Cat People and like all those movies coming out of um, that wow. the Lutons and the wow. Luton, yeah, I think that Luton was sort of its mentor. So he has a cool. really fascinating career, and I think he does such a good job with this. It's another like. 90 minutes. I mean, I think maybe all these movies are under 90 minutes. And, uh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Sort of turns and it's really like a sex comedy of the kind that Doris Day and Rock Hudson will be doing a few years later. But it feels in some ways like the 50s haven't really set in. It feels a little sexier. It's allowed to be a little sexier. They're, it's uh, more honest, I think. Yes, yeah. I think so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're just sort of delicious and, um, and yeah, I think it's just got all these great little set pieces that I won't spoil involving nightclubs and dancing. And there's just, a- Oh my gosh, the dancing <laughs> sequence. Yeah. Hilarious. Yes. No, but you raised such a great um, observation about the, the length of all of these movies because they are right around 90 minutes. I think one might be 99. I can't remember which, but still it's right under a hundred. 
Um, another friend of ours, Jordan Harper, is always talking about and extolling the virtues of the tight 90 is what he <laughs> likes to call it everything. So we're joking when he gets a new company, he's got to call it the tight 90. But yeah. talking about um, how, you know, you get in, get out, tell your story. And these movies do it just so well. And they trust their viewer. You yeah. know, they have to set things up. I mean, they sort of decide to split in the first scene. You know almost nothing about They're having a small nope. night. And then, and, and that is one of the things I always loved about 30 screwballs is they don't feel like they need, they know the audience is in it, you know, yeah. and, and they, so they don't, aren't doing this stuff that, oh, we need to show how they got together. We need to show where the cracks are. We need to get some backstory. We need to see them at work. We need to, yeah. It just jumps right in. Yeah. We see some of that later, but you don't need it right away. I can't remember who the um, screenwriter was that was making a joke about reading screenplays and always getting turned off, like in the first five minutes when you meet somebody and immediately, well, yes, because I am your sister and I let you down when I was five yeah. years old and then we went swimming. And it's like, we don't need all of that. Yeah. Ex exposition dump that is sort yes. of, you know, you're never going to get that when you're dealing with these, with these screenwriters and these are, and this is, you know, play. So it's the zippiness of a play uh, at that era, like a popular um Axelrod was such a, a maestro at these sort of sex comedies and he just has all that zip. Yeah. And again, she's has this um, sort of reputation for playing the dumb blonde, but she's so smart in this one. One of my favorite scenes is this is right after the divorce. She runs into uh, her ex, Jack Lemon. He's at another table with Car uh, Jack Carson. She's with her mom and they're sitting there and they're both drinking martinis and she's had a few too many. And she starts just talking a little too loudly yeah. about, well, I didn't know I was going to turn into a, I'm getting it wrong, but a raving beauty yeah. making 40,000 a year and having her own show. And like, she starts just talking about it and she is raising those questions of, you know, a man's worth next to a female's worth and who makes more money. And it's very, very funny, but it's also like, this is bold for the fifties. It yeah. is delight. You know, like it's sort of delightful when she says, it. I mean, the other, yes. she sometimes reminds me of being able to pull this stuff off is Barbara Stanwyck because like you just, oh, like great. So yeah, she feels so authentic. You like her so much. It, she can get away with stuff that the era's sort of stupid ideas about this yeah. stuff. The studios sort of wanting to make everyone, you know, uh, likable or whatever. Um, that she just sells stuff that should be harder to sell and and that shouldn't be hard to sell but it is mm -hmm. but you know because of patriarchy yes. <laughs> um, but she she made you know and and Stanwyck was so great you know Stanwyck played a lot of career women and and never saw pedaled or tried to um you know oh. and even when she was stuck in movies where she had to kind of you know repent her career girl ways you, you, you <laughs> always made every step believable and authentic and I think that that's what Holiday does here too you just love her you just want to be around her you yeah. love her point of follow her to work to her crazy tv writing gig oh. yes i know and it dares to show you that what you're listening to or people acting out these love affairs aren't as glamorous as they sound i thought that was really funny yeah but i think another thing about her is she's so synonymous with all of these um, playwrights and the dialogue uh and her intelligence um just verbally that you don't really appreciate until you're watching them all what a wonderful physical comedian she is. 
like uh, another great scene. Uh, it's another very like 50 scene where she has Jack Lemon over. This is in a flashback when they first met and he's going to uh, go over her canceled checks and help her with her taxes. And he's checking out her room and it's a one room and where do you sleep? And there's this bed that shoots out of the wall. It's very, <laughs> yeah. It seems like something out of like glass bottom boat or something Doris day, like, and uh, they kind of have this back and forth where they keep opening the bed and closing the bed. And she's, yes. And she's like trying to do it while being subtle. And it's just, she's such a good, she has a command of her body. Wonderful. It's like this Murphy bed. And it's just like this giant phallus. that just keeps yes. on shooting And they have so much fun with it. You can oh see my what. God. You know, you can see that that would have been such great stagecraft on the stage, but she so so makes it. We don't need that. She no. totally makes it work with her reactions. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Oh, just a wonderful movie. Is there anything else you want to add on this one? No, no. Just that people should watch it. Yeah. Uh, it's just a, it is, as I said, a confection. You will just have yes. so much fun. Yeah, I think it might be my favorite. I, I also really love It Should Happen to You, but I think this one is just, it's the one that people don't talk about as much, yeah, but yeah, check true. it out. Uh, well, our final film today is another one that was totally new to me. 1956's The Solid Gold Cadillac from director Richard Quine and adapted from the hit George S. Kaufman and Howard Teichman play by Kaufman Teichman and Abe Burroughs a satire of the corrupt world of big business. In the movie, Judy Holiday stars as an earnest shareholder of the billion-dollar corporation International Projects, who attends the annual shareholders meeting. And in a few key questions about inflated salaries and duties of the board member, she embarrasses all the board. Uh, she's naive, yet very well-intentioned. The company soon decides that it's cheaper to put her on the payroll than actually own up to or fix their greed and corruption. But after she joins the company, she starts to ferret out even more wrongdoing. One of those films where the premise is as solid gold as the weird Cadillac they managed to squeeze in in the end for the title. Well, it starts out quite strong and she and actor Paul Douglas are marvelous. Uh, the action, I thought, kind of dulled down pretty quickly after a while, but I love what this film is trying to say and the way it sort of plays on Holiday's persona as in reality, a genius level woman. So brilliant at playing dumb. So what did you think of this one? Yeah, I don't think she's even playing dumb. I don't think there's anything dumb, but this woman is so smart. I mean, she is. Yes. Uh, like she, she fools uh, them all. Yeah. But also she's the one who's actually reading these stock reports, like seeing what's going on. She's sort of being the board, you know, the stockholder that no one really ever is. And she sees through all this stuff and she embarrasses them because she's not fooled by any of it. And no, she wants to know. <laughs> well, she's also, it also felt very prescient, like looking at these massive corporations and the way that mm. they use and abuse the, the public and she's not falling for any of it and when she gets her you know her sort of foot in the door she uses it for good I mean it really felt like Jimmy Stewart yes. would have her if this were like 1942 yeah and if they flipped it yep it would be the you know the male character and she really 
she converts this sort of Paul Douglas character uh, a businessman to her way of thinking. So it all mm-hmm. feels like uh, like I wanted her to be my senator by the end of it. And I think it's this great populist movie in the best way, and particularly brave and bold to do after you've sort of testified about because it's yes. could very much it's a progressive message and could very much be seen as as at that era seen as as problematic and anti-american uh because it's anti-business which it really isn't but she's certainly questioning the way they these businesses um um treat treat their their workers their the people yeah. that buy goods the um and Congress and, you know, all, all of that, in some ways it feels more incisive to me um, than almost any movie of that era about, about big business. Um, but through this sort of, uh, um, it gets in through the back door because it's yep. like the, the little, little, little girl who sort of makes, uh, makes a splash and isn't it funny, but, but it's very, what she, she takes it again, she takes it very seriously. So we do. So I really love that about it. And I love her odd relationship with Paul Douglas, who is that. It's that, so good. Yes. <laughs> uh, he's kind of a great actor in any role. I, I love him in Clash by Night. He's he's great in yes. so many movies, but he's. Yeah, the um, sandwich. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think they're a great pair. It, it makes sense that they had done Born Yesterday together. They have, they have a lot of chemistry, too, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And what you were saying about Jimmy Stewart. Yes. I think, you know, in another era, you could see this as one of those that Robert Riskin would have written for Capra and it would have been a perfect thing. There's a real heartbreaking moment that is kind of her Jimmy Stewart moment where uh, she's finding out, um, talking to um, a secretary that she befriends, like that people were sort of being nice to her with another agenda. And she has a line, something like, I don't question when people are nice to me or why they're being nice. Like it had never occurred to her. So she is very like guileless and very genuine and just discovering what the corrupt business world is like. I love it too. It reminded me so much of my grandma who um, loved to play the stock market, like had, she did pretty well. She would just try to learn everything and play little bits uh, she actually shares uh, or did share Judy Holiday's birthday. So watching this and then watching this when I was remembering my grandma Eleanor and just thinking about her uh, trying to teach me when we would watch on a sick day and she was looking after me like a stock market. See, what's going on is I have Procter and Gamble and she would try to explain it and it was very cute. So, yeah. yeah. In some ways, I, I mean, I love Born Yesterday, but in some ways I think this is this holds up better on the political side because because sport yesterday gets a little peachy at the end it gets a little heavy-handed and this never does um i mean some of yeah i wouldn't agree with all its choices but it never it never also tries to expound or sort of be any fan i mean the thing that always always bristles me about born yesterday is there's this notion that there aren't really that many um um, elected officials who would really take bribes and it sort of ends with this note that you were like it's sort of blaming the businessman for as if there were no real collusion between uh, Washington <laughs> and this movie never tries to it, they show directly yeah. how this guy goes the Paul Douglas character goes from big business directly to Washington yep. and they're hand in hand so it feels you know much more savvy about that and and so there never takes a sort of high ground so I think I think it's um, 
while it doesn't have the sort of zing of cooker, um, yeah. it's, it's well, well directed and light on its feet and in some ways, yeah, holds up better. There's, there's no moment where you go, hmm, that's, that's a little, <laughs> a little much. Um, um, so yeah, I, I, I was surprised. I had not remembered this one that much from my first watch, but maybe, you know, in our current moment, you know, where it's sort of all these multinational corporations sort of owning everything, it felt yes. really um, um, useful to see. Yeah, it's very savvy about that stepping stone, like, nope, there's business and then a government and it attracts the same things. And sometimes there is overlap of special interests or there's the thing with the brother-in-law um, and then uh, getting rid of a business competitor. Like there's a bunch of questions that are raised in this movie throughout yeah. that I think is, yeah, makes it super yeah. timely. And it, weirdly, this is, I just thought of this, but I was, I, it reminded me a little about, I wonder if the Coen Brothers, Hudsucker Proxy has a little of this movie in it. I know that the Coen Brothers draw from everything, but mm -hmm. there is something a little bit about that sort of the big company that has to hire the person that has in some way um, exposed them and then sort of the path, whether the, what the choice that person will make. And, uh, um, it does remind me a little of that. So maybe there's more, more fans of it than I'm aware of, but I don't hear anybody yeah. talk about this one. So I, I'm glad. Oh, that's a really good observation. As you were saying that I was just remembering the last part of Fargo with, you know, and for what a little bit of money. And so there is kind of, maybe, uh, they would draw on, you know, Stanwyck was definitely somebody that they yes. loved. But yeah, there was maybe a little bit of Judy Holiday in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a great one. Yeah, I love to think of her. I mean, again, I, I like how we're reframing this. There's things she's always just referred to as the dumb blonde, if she's referred to at all. And and I just don't think the movies bear that out. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it's... Um, I think it's sort of a great entree to people. And we haven't even talked about the fact that she was this brilliant musical comedy star and yes. to it all. She gets to sort of do a little singing and a little dancing in some of these movies, but the fact that she was sort of not doing this thing that she's also sort of famously um, amazing yes. at. And if bells are ringing, I think is still on Criterion, which is a great example of getting to hear her sing. Uh, she had a beautiful voice. Yeah, it really shows her versatility. And I think also um, people are always surprised and it's always um, alarming to me when they're surprised what actors, oh my gosh, they can sing. And it's like, because they're wonderful, like the voice is an instrument and she knows how to play it. And in all of these films, like she'll hit a certain register, uh, especially in Born Yesterday, some of her choices for delivery just kill me. And throughout the movies, you can see she is kind of using a little bit of that, but as you said, um, in a dramatic role or more of a comedy dramedy role. And yeah, she didn't really get a chance until Bells Are Ringing, which was her final film. Yeah. 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 Well, and that, that's the thing that we haven't talked about is what, how sad to, yes. to die very young, really, who knows what. Yeah. Yeah. And really 
was so sick towards the end that, that also we do, we, you know, she, she was sort of, it was hard to work at all. And what a loss at such an age, because you could imagine her making movies for decades. Yep. Uh, great. Would have been a great character actress. And, and uh, um, though, I, I mean, I, I didn't, I'm not sure. I've heard conflicting reports that that gray listing really did hurt her. And that was part of it too. And oh. I had a deep dive on that, but you know, in that way that some actors could still work, but they were, I mean, maybe in some ways sort of counting on um, directors and producers and so that had this sort of New York, New York uh, <laughs> connection with her because I think it was harder for her um, given, given the, since she had been won the Oscar um, just a few years before was sort of, you don't see her doing as many movies, but it's still five years or so before she died. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. I wonder about that. When I was looking her up, there are like two biographies, but they were very poorly received. Someone was saying they were full of hearsay or not enough well-sourced individuals talking. So it would be cool if somebody really yeah, somebody, did. Yeah. Somebody yeah. listening to this podcast will get, get Please out Please write there. one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fair and Smith Nemi, we're asking you. Yes. 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 <laughs> the most wonderful with those that have criterion her I thought her intro to this I was, loved it yeah, spectacular and really I think I'm sort of stealing some of her ideas is it was so the way she frames the career was so mm-hmm. um, influential to me and uh so yeah. she would be she would be great to bring her to life but somebody should I mean what somebody a really should yes yeah and what you were saying too about a future like I know one of the last plays she was working on before her death, because she was actually doing some uh, theater involved like um, Pakula. And you can see, wow, in the future, she might've worked with him in film. So it is quite a loss. And obviously her life was tragically cut short by cancer. So the filmography is pretty limited. I think we've mentioned most of her movies, but are there any that we forgot that you wanted to shout out that people should see? No, I think, I mean, because there aren't that many and some very small parts in other movies, but I mean, if people hadn't seen Adam, they should see it anyway, but I think she's a great short turn in that. And you can really see why she sort of lit the screen up. Yeah. A hundred percent. And how about her spirit? Because you mentioned Barbara Stanwyck. Are there any other films maybe from the forties and fifties that you think tapped into some of these ideas that you want to recommend? Yeah, I mean, certainly, like uh, you had mentioned Holiday, which is a early, uh, George Cooker early. Oh, which I love that movie. film. But also, I would certainly say that really the awful truth or any of the sort of yes. screwballs would be would be great in that vein of that. Or um, also maybe The More the Merrier with Gene Arthur is a... Uh, oh, that is a good one. Yeah, I could definitely see Judy Holiday playing that part. And that's that's just um, an incredible movie. So there's, yeah, there's um, really getting into some of those great 30s and early 40s screwballs. Um, would, as, it, there's, you don't need an excuse to do that, but it's... No. <laughs> yeah, and Gene Arthur is another one that they remind me of one another and I can see that so that that is a really good recommendation well Megan I want to thank you so much for doing this it was such a pleasure to talk again and I hope you come back and we can dish about movies again anytime you'd like so this is really wonderful thank you so much
thank you for giving me the excuse to, to talk about Judy and uh, encourage other people to, to find her stuff. Yes, absolutely. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>